the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. So we don't often hear from some of what are called the minor prophets in the scriptures. Books like Amos and Micah, Zephaniah, Obadiah, and the like. Because it's the major prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and particularly Isaiah, that just have so much material. But I wanted to bring us a perspective to start us off today because Zephaniah the prophet was actually a contemporary of Isaiah in the time just before the exile. Now, for anybody whose eyes just glazed over, or if you don't know the history of the Bible, the people of Israel left their enslavement in Egypt and after a lot of really inefficient wandering in the desert, were brought into the promised land of Canaan, which is now the modern day nation of Israel. The years and the judges and then the kings passed by and the people drifted away from the God who had brought them out of Egypt in such a demonstration of power and might. And the deal was, you will be my people and I will be your God. But Israel stopped being his people by no longer behaving like his people. And so the prophets began to come and to tell the people of God that God is going to lift his protecting hands, holding back the nations that were around them, because essentially Israel has said to them, we don't want that anymore. But they also said that amidst the coming pain of an invading army and exile and death and loss, hope is still coming. So we're going to read this morning from the book of Zephaniah the prophet, chapter 3, as he writes God's words to the people of Israel. I'd like to do something a little old-fashioned this morning. If you would stand as you are able as we read the scriptures together. Sing, O daughter Zion, shout aloud. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemy. And the Lord himself, the King of Israel, will live among you. At last your troubles will be over, and you will never again fear disaster. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, Cheer up, O Zion, don't be afraid, for the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. I will gather you who mourn for the appointed festivals. You will be disgraced no more. I will deal severely with all who have oppressed you. I will save the weak and helpless ones. I will bring together those who were chased away. I have been to the fame to my former exiles wherever they have been mocked and shamed. On that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. I will give you a good name, a name of distinction among all the nations of the earth as I restore your fortunes before their very eyes. I, the Lord, have spoken. Thank you. You may be seated. Hope is coming, and that hope 
is a mighty savior. Now, imagine that you're hearing all of these words that you just read about coming pain and exile. What do you imagine that you might think is meant by the words mighty savior? This is a people who has seen a lot, right? This is the story of what we call the Old Testament, which begins with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the God who is promising to come as a mighty savior begins by actually bringing reality itself into existence. You think you can't top that, but then after the fall, there's a powerful global flood. And then later, Israel as a people is set free from Egypt by 10 terrible plagues. And then they continue to see miracle after miracle after miracle in the desert as an ocean is parted for their passing and then released onto their pursuing enemies. Bread and quail fall from the sky to feed them. Fresh drinkable water expounds from a rock. And all the while, there's this pillar of smoke and fire that's leading them. We're in week two of our Advent series, and we're letting the words of Isaiah 9 guide us, where the Savior is given four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, last week, Pastor Ben walked us through how God is a wonderful counselor, despite our penchant, for following counsel from, let's say, less reputable sources, which is what shattered our world and our relationship with God in the first place. Anybody remember the shattering glass? But never fear, because both Isaiah and Zephaniah also say we have a mighty Savior. So again, if this is your experience and your story so far, the creation and the plagues and all these huge acts of grandeur, what sort of mighty savior might you be expecting? Our relationship with might is a tricky one. Power can do anything to us, right? When we think of God, we think of all the omnis, the omniscience and the omnipresence and the omnipotence. All the things that give God the ability to do anything that God wants and, here's the key, that nothing can stop God. Because to us, power is a force. And when you pit a force against another force, we think that the mightiest one is the one who wins because it overpowers all of the other ones or it survives or it triumphs or something of that nature. Again, think about the Old Testament. It's a violent time. And those with power had the ability to force others to do something because they could hold the threat of pain and death or at the very least unpleasantries over you if you didn't comply. Now, I don't really think that that much has changed since then. If anything, that we've found additional, more subtle forms of the same thing in our day and age. We still do the whole angry intimidation bit, not only as assault on others, but also as deterrent. You know, the whole my gun is bigger than your gun thing. But it's also just as common, I think, in our nation at least, to use emotional forms of violence now too. Look at social media and tell me that we have somehow progressed as a species. The kind of anger and intimidation coming from so many to try and enforce their opinion online these days, I think, is just as much a pandemic as ever. 
In a recent letter, President, CEO, and Editor-in-Chief of Christianity Today, Timothy Dalrymple, comments on his early and then his ongoing experience with online publishing. When something transpired in the news, responses for that were instantaneous, hyperbolic, and filled with contempt for some disfavored group attracted millions of views. Responses that took the time to reflect and respond in a measured, nuanced, humble manner were lost in the digital cacophony. The incentive structures of digital content rewarded provocateurs, scorn merchants, and sudden celebrities whose charisma translated well into new media. Now, some things have changed since that time. Human nature is not one of them. Countless millions of readers have gravitated toward media properties and personalities that are all too happy to affirm that the angels are all on their side and the devils are on the other. Sobering words. No perspective, worldview, or culture is exempt from the sort of people who find that engendering fear and anger, either fear of the person doing the intimidating or fear of some circumstance in the world, people find still that it's one of the easiest means to the end of getting someone to do what they want them to do. And as a result, in an already shattered, distanced world, we distance ourselves from one another even more. But truly negative uses of power don't always come from obviously negative sources like these. Sometimes might looks like charisma. Now, I'm not saying that just because a person is charismatic means that they're somehow abusing their power. But think about how often this does happen. Charisma relies on the ability to appeal to emotion, which can really easily turn into manipulation. Now, this is basically what happens in so many cases of cult behavior and emotional domestic abuse, of course, but also in other situations, like how some self-help gurus and pyramid schemes uh, swindle people out of their money and time just because they show us the supposed positive benefits that we might get if we would just do the thing that they want. And they're just so persuasive. We buy into their confidence even though their confidence is nearly always overblown and not always entirely truthful. Again, this is not everyone with charisma. You can have charisma and be a person of character. I'm grateful for the words in the book of Acts at times like this because it exalts the character of a people called the Bereans. Uh, in Acts 17, we read, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Fact check us, please. So with all of this going on, with all the ways in which we are used to seeing power displayed in might and grandeur and prominence, in a world in which we're used to everyone trying to sell us something, get us to do what they want, believe what they want, feel what they want, buy what they want, when someone says that God is coming as a mighty savior, what do you think you'd want God to do with everything and everyone that is attempting to use you and abuse you? 
I think we'd want the mighty savior to turn around and hurt them right back, right? Make them feel what we felt, make them pay. And yet, when God comes to live among us, he shows up in a manger as a baby. Anybody else see that one coming? The Israelites certainly didn't. A few months ago, we talked about uh, the various factions that were around during Jesus' time. And while everyone had their own idea of what the Messiah might look like, most of them basically thought that it would mean getting rid of their uh, Roman oppressors in some fashion. The Zealots, in particular, believed this so strongly they essentially trained themselves into an insurrectionist army to aid the Messiah in what they expected to be the violent removal of Rome from Israel. But no, we got a baby. Like we heard earlier from the book of Isaiah, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Nothing beautiful, nothing majestic, nothing attractive, acquainted with deepest grief. Kind of makes you wonder if we may have missed something about what true might actually is. Because it's true that God can and has done many of the things that we consider powerful. Everything from creating the cosmos to those plagues in Egypt, acts that convey, at least to us, true might and authority. And so God is creator. God is all of those omnis. God is able to cast fear or be charismatic. Although, let's back up a second. Look at where that form of power has always been directed. When Egypt enslaved the Israelites, Israel was freed from Egypt by those mighty acts of plagues and such against Egypt. Or, when Israel began worshiping the Baals and the Asherah, which were basically uh, cults that glorified child sacrifice and ritualized sex, Israel was conquered by Babylon and then exiled. When Jesus himself got angry, he overturned the tables of the money changers who were taking advantage of the poor in the temple. Displays of mighty power, the way that we usually think of them, were always directed against acts of injustice and the people who perpetuated them, people who were using illegitimate forms of power that we had already talked about. And yet this is not how God chose to introduce himself in person. God came into a world that had been, had been through such violence that to come in power in the traditional interpretation of that word would not show care or love to a people who had been through and continue to live in the tyranny of abuse. 
Listen again to the words of Zephaniah the prophet. Cheer up, O Zion, don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Now I called your attention to that mighty piece there in the middle, but look at the words that Zephaniah chose to describe might. Living among you. Taking delight in you. Loving you. Rejoicing over you. And what's more, you will not be afraid. I mean, who's afraid of a baby? I mean, I actually can think of one example. And Pastor Diane is going to teach us a little bit more about Herod in a couple weeks. But more or less, we're not afraid of babies because they're helpless. We take care of them. So when someone has been abused or someone has anxiety, how would you approach them? Now, I can speak with some authority on this. I am actually medicated for an anxiety condition. Yes, I am medicated, and I would happily talk to you about that if you need that. The way to approach someone having an anxiety attack, especially someone who has not been treated yet, is not through those traditional forms of power and authority. You don't simply say, oh, don't worry about it, it'll be okay, and expect that will somehow make everything better. You don't say, oh, clearly you have no faith, as if somehow guilt will solve an anxiety attack. And frankly, you can't possibly know if they have faith or not. Instead, what you do is you come alongside them. You treat them gently. You give them permission to be afraid. You care for them. See, for all the majesty and the glory and the glitter that we put into Christmas, it's really not much of a story of grandeur, is it? Sure, that it's a miracle that Jesus becomes incarnate, that angels appear to people, but of course not the people we'd expect, the shepherds, the nobodies. The Savior is born as a baby in a backwater town of a conquered nation to poor working class parents who are publicly disgraced because they weren't supposed to have a baby before they were married. So sexy a story, right? The song Silent Night isn't accurate because the stable was actually quiet. The song is accurate because the world wasn't really that much changed when the Savior was born. People were just sort of going about things as they always do in an oppressed land. Angels had to say things like, don't be afraid to everyone they encountered because they were terrifying. Have you ever read the description of an angel in the book of Revelation? There's like wings and eyes all over the place. It's terrifying. But not baby Jesus. Maybe true might or true power, or true authority, isn't worried about how it appears. Maybe it's not anxious about everything because the one who has true power, who is truly mighty, a mighty savior, for example, knows who they are and has the confidence to be truly humble, to give up their privilege and then serve. 
There's a word for this. Meekness. Now, to be meek is not to be powerless. In fact, it's actually quite the opposite. Meekness is a trait for someone with power who chooses to be restrained with that power, who uses that might for the good of others. Those who are meek are aware of the power that they wield and for the potential of that power to either hurt or help others. And so they choose to help, to serve, to restrain that power when it's necessary to allow the other person agency to make their own decisions because meekness is how someone with power can show true love. So when I was first learning French horn, like way back in grade school, one of the things that most of my teachers told me was this. To play quietly requires a whole lot more work and effort than playing loudly. Now, French horn is a pretty powerful instrument. I know that Glenn really doesn't like to admit this, but were he to play full power on the organ, you would still hear me if I wanted you to. I mean that. <laughs> Playing loud is just a matter of force on an instrument that's designed to be heard. But to play quietly on a French horn is a whole other thing. Playing quietly requires more strength in your embouchure, which is the most sensitive muscles in your body, your lip muscles. It requires more air and more support from your intercostal muscles. It requires more concentration and more intent. See, quiet is hard. I think meekness is like that. Being meek requires being more intentional. It requires more endurance, more assurance, more confidence, more strength, more, dare I say it, faith, than being bold and brash and powerful because meekness does what is right even when it costs something. See, gentleness is hard. Patience and humility are hard. Love can be hard. One of the earliest heresies of the church way back in the second century was called Gnosticism. And it was known in part for saying that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were actually different gods. To the Gnostics, the idea that God could somehow be strong and mighty but also somehow humble and meek were incompatible ideas. And so what they did was they actually rewrote the creation account to include the idea that the God of the Old Testament was basically this tyrant who created physical reality as a means of torment. And that Jesus, in the New Testament, came to set us free from that God and free from the reality of the tyranny of the physical world. But here's the thing. Jesus never actually said anything of the sort. Jesus started by saying, I and the Father are one. That the God of the Old Testament who performed such terrible and wonderful acts of creation and plague and rescue, in fact, became embodied in this world, that God actually entered into this messy, painful, sticky, embarrassing, power-abandoning process 
of incarnation into our human flesh and reality, not to set us free from that flesh, but to become whole in that again. That our minds and our bodies and our spirits could be made whole together and in their relationship with the very one who made them, our creator. It wasn't in spite of the fact that God could create and then move oceans that he became a baby. It was because of that power that he could. The manger, the manger is the very picture of a mighty savior. So today we are invited to some self-reflection. How do we relate to power? Are we seeking to gain more influence and power and control over others? Or are we seeking to give away and share our power and influence and elevate others above ourselves? Are we seeking to control or are we seeking to practice meekness? Do you think you're going to force someone to do something or are you going to invite them on a journey with you? Then there's our collective witness to the world. We are not pointing to Jesus when we celebrate and elevate people who don't use power the way that Jesus did. So what powerful people do we tend to elevate in front of others? Do we like to point towards the servant-minded, share their platform, elevate the poor and broken and servant-minded others? Or do we prefer the other kind of people who use their power to hoard more power for themselves, who invite us to consume more and more at the expense of others, whose charisma is greater than their character? How do we relate to power? Lest we be discouraged as we come to the communion table. Let me paraphrase Zephaniah for us again. Cheer up, O church. Don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He delights in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He rejoices over you with joyful songs. Amen? Amen. Let it be so.